Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, my name is Sana Mandrilini. I'm the Director uh, of Centre for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics and the founder of the International Civil Society Action Network. Welcome to this eighth in our series of the coming of age of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda 21 in 2021. Um, this event is hosted by the London School of Economic Center for Women, Peace and Security, ICANN, and the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. Um, the title and topic uh, of today's discussion is why don't women's lives matter? Ignoring sexual violence and conflict. And I'm uh, really proud and privileged to have as my guests, Pramila Patton, um, the uh, of Mauritius, who was appointed a special representative on sexual violence and conflict at the UN in 2017. Uh, Robina Rabumbe, um, founder and national coordinator of the Coalition for Action on Resolution 1325, COACT of Uganda, and Sarud Mohamed Fali, um, Kurdish uh, uh, activist from Kirkuk, who has who was uh, been involved very much and has had direct impact of the conflict um, in her country. Um, uh, she has a history of working with the UNFAO and has been a longtime activist on the role of women um, in peace and security and engagement in the implementation of Resolution 1325. Ladies, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Really, really wonderful to have you um, here with me today for a conversation which I, think is, uh, which I think is going to be um, difficult at some, at, uh, on many levels. These, these are very serious issues. Um, but I also hope that as we go through the discussions, people will hear some of the solutions and some of the inspirational work that you're involved in. So um, with that, I'm going to kick off and uh, maybe start with uh, Sarud. Sarud, Tell us, in, in the context of Iraq right now, um, we're not really hearing much in the news internationally uh, about what, how things are going, what, what's going on, what's, what's happening, um, what are the security conditions, and, and particularly in terms of um, the experiences of women and girls uh, and violence, uh, what's, what's the state of affairs right now? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Snam. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, ladies and uh, uh, gentlemen. And uh, uh, my name is Sarud. I'm uh, from a city called Kirkuk, and uh, Kirkuk is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious city. Um, uh, working for Iraqi Al-Amal Association since 2005, and uh, the uh, the condition of Iraq after the, uh, the election and uh, 94 ladies uh, that they win the parliament seat. And this is the first time of the Iraqi history that we have this range of the women in the parliament uh, uh, because now we are above the quota uh, uh, as we have it in the Iraqi constitution. Before we uh, had um, uh, 83, but now we have uh, 94 uh, women that they win. And um, 33 of them, uh, they win without the quota because they got the highest number and that is mean that uh, the uh, the people they they touch the uh, the woman effect on the ground and how they are uh, looking for the um, um, benefit of the people it's not about the benefit of the parties or uh, political uh, sides 
So, uh, um, uh, like, uh, if I want to talk about uh, uh, the condition that happened the election, uh, there is, um, uh, I, I can say, more than 30 type of the uh, for, uh, armed group in my city. And, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, that has increased the um, uh, armed uh, society, um, uh, the militarized the, um, community. And uh, that's effect on the uh, security because we can find on daily basis we have a crime, we have uh, harassment, we have cases of the rape uh, by the armed groups and um, also uh, like killing women. Um, uh, if it is uh, on uh, like honor crime or in other uh, any other reasons. Also, we have uh, a drugs uh, um, problem that is uh, it's more uh, affected also on the um, uh, society problem and especially against women and uh, girls that's increased uh, rape from the family members. Uh, and harassment to the, especially uh, through the, um, um, uh, like, corona time, um, uh, uh, because of the uh, curfew and uh, the families that they stayed inside the house, and that's increased the cases of the rape between the uh, family member against the woman and the um, uh, girls. Um, uh, um, and now still we are missing the, uh, the uh, legal framework of the um, family uh, domestic violence. And this is more than 10 years, like the activists, they, uh, they um, uh, uh, have different initiative and ask the parliament, there is two different copies. Um, uh, um, uh, this is one of the basic needs, so we can stand on, on it. And um, uh, also, like uh, uh, when I talked about the um, environment for the women and the girls, like uh, today I was talking about the uh, lack number of the uh, female police uh, officers uh, that uh, we have it on our society. Uh, also, the uh, when we talk about the uh, uh, you know government power about the uh, level of the government because of the armed group and the um, influence from the other countries on, uh, uh, on the, our government. We don't have the power of the law, the enforcement, because uh, uh, until they threaten the police officers, they threaten the judge, and uh, that is mean we don't have justice. Uh, uh, and uh, the people are scared, like when I'm working on the GBV cases with the survivors, like in Kirkuk, we have six centers of the uh, GBV, uh, like uh, uh, women and girls safe space. Uh, I, I found, you know, like several times, like 20, 30 armed group, they surrounded our centers because we keep the survivors with us until the police or uh, uh, others, uh, people who they trust us, they come and they support us. Uh, additional that uh, they uh, they wrote ba badly about us on the Facebook. Uh, they start uh, making case cases against us in the court. Um, they start uh, recording case with the decision makers on us because we support the survivors. And when the woman for the first time at the liberation area who was under the ISIS control, we start um, uh, awareness the woman and. Uh, start asking about their rights and through our lawyers
when the woman they ask, asking about uh, the the child uh, um, uh, alimony and the the, the woman's uh, you know uh, their rights in the court they start againsting us and making different problems maybe they wanted to target uh, you know uh, uh, you know uh, like my teams being in different uh, bad uh, situation also different times through the curfew uh, like when we went to help the survivors they start holding the gun uh, against uh, uh, like our social worker and me different times and we didn't have right to ride like a, a car we walked until we arrived to the survivor, but at the end we found that there is a, they are uh, uh, armed, uh, uh, you know, armed husband, and he start holding the gun against us because we wanted to help the uh, daughter or the wife. And uh, uh, this is the situation for uh, um, uh, women and the girls. And until now, we are missing for the like woman shelter. And like every day we have the cases and we need to refer them from Kirkuk um, to uh, uh, other uh, area in uh, Kurdistan uh, region. Uh, because they have a shelter, they, their law it is more respective to the women and the girls when I compare it with the Iraqi federal law and uh, uh, also the mentality of the uh, uh, people, it's, it's different. And what we found also, there is a kind of the conflict when we look to the law as a feminist, we can see it is different uh, uh, interpreter uh, when uh, uh, the male, they look uh, to the law. Um, because the man they translated on their, um, uh, um, uh, you know, on their benefit, uh, um, uh, and that is meaning like until for the election, it should be like more than hundred women that they win uh, without, uh, you know, without needing the quota. But but uh, because the from the man perspective, you know, they uh, translate the law. All the decision, uh, most of the decision maker are uh, from the man. Um, also, I wanted to uh, can talk I just, about. Can I can I just stop you there because I, I'll come back to yeah what what because you've brought up uh, so many issues right that that you have women finally we're getting women past the quota in in parliament in terms of legislation, but the reality on the ground is that actually these armed forces that are tied to regional actors and others in a way have more power. Than, than the government. And, and as you're saying, women and girls are getting stuck in the middle of this. But I want to come back to the question of the curfews and so forth. Um, but let me first go to, to Rubina. Rubina, you know, when you listen to Sarud talking about um, the challenges of being on the ground um, of the sort of the broader security situation and then the impact on women, um, what does it, how does that resonate for you in, in the context of Uganda? And, and also, um, huge condolences for the for for the bombings that happened in Kampala. I'm just wondering how on earth that's adding to the already existing issues that you've been dealing with in the COVID context. What's going on with women and girls and and, and issues of sexual violence um, in Uganda? And and I'll come back to both of you about about these these issues also affecting men and boys. But um, but the, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sanam. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm speaking from Kampala, Uganda, and I head a coalition of women's organizations that do this building work uh, from the grassroots to the continent of Africa. Um, 
in, if you speak about state security, I would, I would put us at about at between 85 to 90 percent at the moment. We, we did have the bombs and uh, the ISIS uh, claimed responsibility. But since then, we have had a huge increase of uh, security personnel patrolling the cities, uh, not only Kampala, but the major cities. They are on the roads. They are moving around uh, the suburbs of the city. They are picking up individuals that are associated with the Allied Democratic Front, which is the terrorist group that is particularly responsible for this. So I would say that uh, right now that seems to be in control. But in terms of human security, especially for women and girls, that remains a huge challenge. Uh, we had elections in January this year and all the months from about August last year until about April this year, they were very violent days. And much of this violence was specifically targeted to young women that were participating in political processes. And especially the young women that were linked with uh, one um, of, the, of the candidates, uh, popularly known as Bobby Wine. So we've had um, uh, tens of cases of girls that still live uh, very traumatized because they were sexually abused even after being tortured during arrest. They were sexually abused while they were in police custody. They were beaten. They, they were gang raped. Um, it, it's horror stories. And Sanam, you know that we had a weekend with 20 of these girls where they told us all these stories. We had hoped that during that time, we would uh, enable them to reach a process where they could go and support other girls, but we weren't able to even reach that point because they are, they are brutally traumatized. So uh, from that experience, again, coming in the middle of COVID, we already had huge escalation of domestic violence across the country. Our report, uh, our annual crime report for 2020 reported a 60% increase in cases of domestic violence. And when it came to uh, sexual violence against underage girls, it is just out of the world. It's, it's just too much. So we've had that going on, then coupled with the violence from the election, uh, but, but also, um, and I mean, these are things that have really rolled back a lot of the progress that we in civil society had made in, you know, advocating for gender equality, in uh, putting in place mechanisms for safety for women and girls. And then the fact that our schools have been closed practically since March 2020. Now, for most of the, of the children, especially the girls, Schools are the only place of safety that they have. So when the schools were closed, a lot of these girls were forced into child marriages. So we have a lot of cases of those. Uh, many teenagers are pregnant from 11-year-olds to 18-year-olds. They are pregnant. Some of them have given 
reverse every medical center reports increased numbers of teenagers that are coming for antenatal care. And those are those who go because uh, Uganda being what it is and our remoteness, the majority of them do not even go to a medical center. So that is a huge problem. We do not receive uh, as many cases of domestic violence as we did at the peak of COVID during the lockdown uh, because women are out in the market. But with a little girls, it is still challenging. And this is, is not helped by the fact that we have porous borders, especially between the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. And here, along these borders, instability and violent conflict can flare up anytime. We had um, uh, cases, we've had three cases of violence along the border with South Sudan this year alone. And we've had a food not moving, relief, uh, supplies not moving, going to South Sudan or coming to refugee settlements in Uganda. And then we continue to have this huge influx of refugees, the majority of whom are women and girls coming in from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and also South Sudan. So currently we are hosting over 1.4 million refugees. And when you go to any of the refugee settlements, 75% uh, of them are either women and girls or children, small children. So where are the men? So you know th these are challenges that we are currently facing and this is the situation that we have. Thank, thank you, Robina. And I'm going to come back to you about this, this issue of, the, of how girls, as you said, underage girls, both in, in the case of Iraq, but also in the case of, of Uganda, we're seeing them being the kind of the, receive, the receiving end of, of all of these types of challenges. Uh, Pramila, I wanted to come to you, um, sitting where you are at the UN, you hear these things, I'm sure you're hearing it from many other countries. And then we have the situation of Afghanistan, which has just been devastating in terms of rollbacks and, and in terms of the kind of the world really um, uh, betraying, if you want, um, uh, Afghan, Afghan women. Um, can you tell me what, you're, what you've been dealing with? Um, COVID, all these issues. I mean, what's it like to be sitting in your, in, from, your, from your angle and your perspective on the world and, and being, you know, being the person who was meant to be dealing with prevention of sexual violence against women and girls? Well, Samum, uh, good morning, good afternoon to all. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. And I really want to start by commending the work of Sarud and, and, and Rubina, who has really exposed the challenges that they face uh, in, their, in their daily work. And, and the stories shared by both Rubina and, and Sarud resonates with me because I see the same pattern uh, in in uh, in my 19 uh, conflict and post-conflict uh, countries. From the perspective of the UN, from where I sit as the special representative uh, of the Secretary General on sexual violence in conflict, it is, uh, it, it can be distressing, uh, but also rewarding. As you know, this is a young mandate. My mandate was only uh, established in 2009 with the adoption of Security Council Resolution 1888. And it was just a year before with uh, Resolution uh, 1820 that for the first time, the Security Council saw war through the eyes of women and girls whose bodies have been part of the battlefield. Uh, 
And this, with this new approach, they affirmed that there could be no security without women's security. And, and they saw sexual violence, uh, they elevated sexual violence to uh, the paramount peace and security body of the United Nations, notably the, the Security Council. We have a remarkable normative uh, framework. After the uh, Security Council Resolution 1888, which established my mandate, we have had no less than 10 uh, resolutions of the Council on Women, Peace and Security, and six very specifically on conflict-related sexual violence. But, and, and the, 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 there have been also uh, a lot of progress in terms of institutional arrangements. In addition to the creation of my office, uh, the, uh, the Security Council also established a team of experts on the rule of law and sexual violence in conflict, for example, to, to in, uh, strengthen institutional safeguards against impunity at the national level. Uh, they uh, have called for women protection advisors to be deployed to the field to enhance our monitoring, uh, reporting and, and, and response. But in terms of operational impact, we see that sexual violence persists uh, with conflict. And we see that wherever there's an, uh, there is militarization, uh, conflict, uh, sexual violence occurs. And it is true that on the one hand, we are, we are reaching out and supporting thousands of survivors who had once been invisible and, and, and uh, inaccessible. It is true that peacekeepers are, are, are now systematically trained on how to prevent, deter, and respond to sexual violence as part of their operational readiness to protect civilians. It is true that we have tools like uh, sanctions. Uh, there are uh, standalone des designation criteria on sexual violence uh, in sanctions regime for a number of countries as Central African Republic, DRC, Libya, Somalia, and, and South Sudan. Uh, but as civilians continue to suffer sexual violence, uh, it is uh, not for a lack of international norms and institutions to protect them, but it's because the norms are inadequately implemented and enforced. And it is also because existing institutions are not backed with sustained political and, 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 and financial support. And I think it was Sarud who mentioned uh, state and non-state armed groups. And, and one challenge that I have is that uh, non-state armed groups constitute the majority of, of the perpetrators that are actually listed in the annual report of the Secretary General. But at the same time, leveraging behavioral change on the part of non-state actors to ensure that they comply with international norms is a critical challenge for my for my mandate. I do engage with with state actors. I uh, I have signed political agreements in eleven countries, uh, and uh, we work on on an implementation plan, and we work on a roadmap. We identify we identify uh, the priorities, but. Uh, engaging with non-state actors, it's is, and to get them to to make commitments to prevent sexual violence is is much much harder. I think it's it's a fact that uh, uh, sexual violence is is a, is a cheap tool, and that's why it continues to 
used as a tactic of war, of terror, and also of political repression, I think, as Rubina has actually highlighted. And it is also a fact that uh, justice uh, is the rare exception and impunity is very much the rule in spite of some gains that we have made uh, over the years in a number of countries, just the ASEAN, South Sudan, but uh, it, it, it's very much a, a, a cost-free, it's very much cost-free to, to, to rate. Uh, I, uh, that's why uh, when I took office in 2017, I set three strategic priorities for the mandate. Firstly, prevention through justice and accountability. Uh, secondly, uh, for me, and, and again, Sarud and Rubina has talked about, have talked about survivors. For me, the mandate was created for survivors, uh, a woman or a girl, a, a man or a boy, and has the face of, of a survivor, and that it's important to have a survivor-centered approach. And last but not least, sexual violence in conflict does not happen in a, in a vacuum, and that it is critical we are to prevent sexual violence to address the root causes. With gender inequality and discrimination, marginalization and poverty being the invisible, invisible drivers. And I'm very happy that with two years of advocacy in 2019, the Security Council adopted Resolution 2467, which really uh, articulates my three strategic priorities and recognized, for example, for the first time, different groups of victims, such as men and boys, children born of, uh, of sexual violence, and call for a survivor-centered approach in both prevention and response, calls for a, a comprehensive legal framework, both substantive and, and procedural addresses, security sector reform that is, that is called for, is a very comprehensive uh, resolution, but which now has to be implemented. And that's why moving forward beyond Resolution 2467, my focus is to ensure that we move from resolution to solution, from commitments to compliance. And, and it brings me, um, it brings me to the to to my next question. In a way, I'm, I'm going to switch the, the the flow a little bit. But it's that you know, as you say, we have this incredible normative framework. Um, and and Robina and and Sarud, you've talked also about the importance of having legislative frameworks and and systems in place and so forth. And yet the reality on the ground, whether state or non-state, um, uh, it's really not, it's not kind of taken as seriously as it should be. You know, when I, and I bring this to the sort of the Afghan case that Afghan women were, I don't know what else they needed to do to say, to warn against what the Taliban was bringing and, and to, to demand to be involved in the negotiations and, and around, you know, to bring up the issue of civilian protection. And yet neither our governments nor, our, of course, the non-state actors are really taking this seriously. So, so the question, the reason why we, we frame the, the discussions as do women's lives really matter is that where are we now? I mean, we, it's great to have all the talk and all the laws, but where is the money? Where is the backup? Where is the real commitment to the solutions, as, as you said, Pramila? But, you know, where is that happening? Rubina, did you want to come in on that one uh, in terms of sort of how you see whether lives matter or not or how we should be reframing Maybe when we think about kind of you know justice and accountability, what other systems and mechanisms, cultural norms, et cetera, do we need to harness to 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 bring this issue that you know why don't women's and girls' lives matter so much? So you're muted. When I think about this question, 
Uh, we haven't even seen. I mean, culturally in Uganda, women were there to, to be seen, but never to be heard. Uh, you dressed up and sat quietly. Uh, if you were lucky next to your husband, but if unlucky, you sit on the floor somewhere. Um, that mentality has really not changed in, in the minds of the system. Because I find that we are dealing with a system that is very patriarchal and it is informed by uh, the, the culture in our societies, it is informed by our, our faiths. And you can think of any faith, you know, across the board. So we continue to remain women in the background and it doesn't matter what you do. If we can have uh, women in parliament, women in parliament of Uganda have reported being sexually violated by their own colleagues when they travel for conferences. A male colleague has a room next door to yours. He knocks on your door and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. you think, oh, that's a work day. Let's have a discussion. They've come to attack you. So if, if it happens to women who are in the parliament, then what about these, what about women like us? What about local level women on the ground who get up in the morning to dig in their showers and go fetch water, fetch firewood? So it's like we continue to, the system continues to regard women as objects. And this is in spite of the good uh, legal frameworks that most of our countries have. Uganda has a most gender sensitive constitution. We have very good laws. We even have a domestic violence act passed in 2010. We have laws against sexual violence. We have very stringent uh, punitive measures for perpetrators. But when the system make it, makes it impossible for a woman that has been violated to access justice, then that woman will remain invisible because who, who is responsible for the justice? The majority are men, who is investigating? The majority are men, where are women in the security sector that could work with our criminal investigation department? The majority of them are men. So they will listen to a fellow man. They are potential violators themselves. So when you go to court, the magistrate's court, the high court, whatever court, how many are women that sit in those courts? So who is listening to this woman? In Uganda, we have a structure that starts from the village. They are local council courts. They have a chairperson. It is very difficult for a woman even to be elected as the chairperson of a village to chair the local council court. So if, if the men are the ones that are dispensing justice and the majority of them are, are potential perpetrators, it's no wonder that, that women don't matter. So until we get women into these places, into these positions that matter, decision-making positions in the security sector, in our police, in our military, in prisons, the prison service have told you cases of women violated when they are by prisons orders. Until we get women of influence in our judicial system and process, then women won't matter. 
because it is informed by our culture, by our faith, and it is all patriarchal. It's thank you for, for, for so until until we get women into positions of power and influence in yeah. the security yeah. sector yeah. and governance, women's lives won't matter. Um, Sarud, I'm going to come to you on that because you were shit, you were nodding as, as Robina was, was speaking, but also you raised the problem that we're now, you know, even if we have them, you know, you've got, as you said, 94 women now coming into parliament. Um, if your security arena is now overwhelmed with armed non-state actors, as you mentioned and as, as Pramila mentioned, um, what happens then? I mean, why, going down to the cultural level, why don't these armed groups, you know, these men who are part of these movements also, um, why doesn't it matter to them? I mean, is it, is it, can we just blame culture and say that we can't deal with, you know, the men are, the, the men are, it's, it's, a, it's a lost cause, or how do you see this um, kind of playing out in terms of what you, what we need to do to, to address the fact that we're talking about little girls, right? It's, it's these, these big men with all their ego or whatever the masculinity that they're supposed to, with their weapons, but their targets, as, as you both mentioned, are often young girls. Um, why doesn't it matter to them? And what, what's, the, what's the cultural context? Is this a new development? Um, has, has it always been underlying in Iraq or is this something that's happened in the last 20 years for you? Yeah, uh, you know, part of Kirkuk was under the ISIS control maybe more than four years, and uh, like the ISIS, uh, um, uh, they, they wasn't uh, just an armed group, terrorist armed group. There, it's a mentality. Now the ISIS is gone. Still, there is a movement of the ISIS around, but it's it's in the man. Most of the decision maker they have the ISIS mentality because now we say like the ISIS they left but still you know every day there is a rape cases from uh, uh, the armed group and they will solve it in tribal law um, uh, it is they pay uh, money to the family that they rape their daughters it is uh, and later they will blame her and you know they will uh, like she she's still alive but she died because they lock on her inside the family uh, the house they will not let her to get out this is part of the our culture and the cult this is being accepted by the government sometimes the uh, the court they cannot solve the problem they say go and solve it tribally later you can come and ask for your right because uh, uh, um, uh, you know it is not the uh, um, you know the rule of the law it's not uh, uh, fr from the government side it's not controlling it's the tribal law this is the role of the tribal so this is uh, from uh, from a side, and uh, uh, also you know because uh, um, uh, the police are men, the judge are men. Uh, so because of the um, corruption that we have, they change all the evidence, they change all the uh, witnesses. You know everything. It is just by the bribe. All the case, the document will be changed, and uh, uh, this is one of our struggles when we lobbying. And until like, if I went to be a witness, I should be a um, hidden witness. And this is the way that we are using when we uh, um, uh, like lobbying some of the cases in the hidden way, we go to the judge and we give them all the evidence and the paper that we have because our life is not uh, secure here. So in, in different ways that uh, 
women and the girls they are uh, you know uh, uh, they are part of the uh, corruption uh, like when we solve it on the uh, tribal reconciliation so uh, everything that they pay their daughter today like uh, some of the guys told me in their village around Hawija when the head of the tribe gets sick one of the father of the tribe went to him and give uh, him her daughter so it is like a gift for his recovery so you can imagine the mentality so when he gets uh, recovered from the sickness uh, he has a, a new wife you know a teenager and the different from the age he's like a grandfather for her this is this is the mentality still we have it this is like uh, women and girls are not a human you know when we talk about the humanity it is that is not mean women and girls it is just a man it is male you know this is this is the biggest problem but uh, you know through through the different work that we have it uh, uh, and the impact from the more than 10 years that we work in the ground and after we create different women networks in uh, in all the suburbs around the karpuk we lobby the tribes we lobby the government and you know we have our voice but we are we are scaring also from a side but we are shout but when i be alone you know they can't target me easily but when i be hundred women so they get scared from me so like through our work like and uh, our women peace table Uh, uh, we awareness the woman and we we choose the woman leaders in the society so they can be part of this woman network and after they start targeting us and targeting our reputation we start creating man network also to involve uh, man uh, enlightened man who are believing what we are doing and uh, we involve them in our uh, movement so they can be part of our, our process so and also we have some police officers we have uh, teachers uh, uh, writers uh, journalists you know activists they supported us you know now we have a uh, like a good uh, uh, base uh, for, between the society but still they are they are stronger because they have a gun so they are in power you know when we 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 are defending with our with the law with the pen pencil but they are like uh, againsting us with the gun and with their uh, decision and there there is a difference they have a money but we don't have the money we 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 we, we know today we were talking about the um, uh, peace peace society in karku how we can involve women and girls and uh, how we can uh, um, increase their voice and uh, how we can like uh, we have a program in the radio we call her her voice is peace so uh, how we can raise the woman voice in that you know this this is very important and we need to encourage this kind of the movement to uh, encourage and uh, like one of the questions that i i, I read it there so mentioned that Um, uh, uh, we have a good uh, 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 like in, in somehow we have a good constitution and uh, like we CEDO um, uh, uh, and um, um, uh, child convention right you know we have different uh, uh, international law but uh, uh, 
where is the implementation, you know? And uh, also um, uh, we have a, a statement between the Iraqi government and the uh, uh, um, uh, SGBV, uh, UN representative, you know, for the SGBV, but still, where is the implementation? You know, there is many things is written, but it's missing the implementation in the ground. So it is very important that the Iraqi government, the decision maker, they are not shaming from the Iraqi people, but they are shaming from the um, international, uh, uh, you know, lobby and UN actors. And I hope you can continue your support, uh, you know, and asking the government, what happened to that statement? Where, where is your implementation for the CEDO? And uh, what happened to the uh, Iraqi constitution that you have? It? It's very important. And when any embassy or any UN representative, they asking the Iraqi government, you know, next day we can see the difference. Act, you know, this is important for us. Thank you. Thank you. And actually, I'm, I'm going to come to, to Pramila with a slightly, I will bring up this question of, you know, how important that international eye and focus and, you know, whether it's pressure, whether it's encouragement, um, however, incentives, however one wants to think about it, how important that is for, for still for, for various countries. But I'm going to just um, maybe take a different uh, angle now and, and come to a more personal um, uh, perspective. Uh, when I see the three of you and I think about the, the kind of work you're dealing with, the kind of issues and kind of stories that you hear and people that you know, I mean, all of us in this, in this field of women, peace and security, we come across information um, that we can never unknow. When you, know, when you know about rape cases or when you know about how people are being affected, it's not something that goes away. You can't erase it out of your, your memory. And, and it affects us in different ways. So I, I just wanted to, to kind of ask you on a personal level, Pramila, what led you into this work? How on earth, you know, if, if you look back and say to your 18-year-old self or your 19-year-old self and, and look, did you ever imagine that you would be doing this? And what, what's it like? How did, you, how did you get into this field? Um, how do you keep going uh, on, on a personal level, on, you know, on the hard days, on, on, the, on the good days? Thank you. Well, <clears throat> thank you so much for, for, your, for your question, because in fact, uh, my career, I was called to the bar in 1982 and specialized in commercial law and wanted to have a commercial law practice. So I returned to my country, uh, Mauritius, in 1982 uh, and was focusing uh, really on a corporate practice. But Soon, and I, and, and I did end up practicing corporate law for 35 years, but my career took a, a dual track. Out of my interest, passion, I must say, uh, in uh, work around promotion and, and, and protection of women's human rights and, and the advancement of, of gender equality in law, uh, policy, and, and, uh, and practice. Uh, my work as a lawyer uh, enabled me to observe on a daily basis uh, the importance of equality for the law for women. I saw how uh, gender bias and stereotypes were impacting on women's access to justice. So in, a, in an effort to alter the legal landscape and raise awareness about women's rights, I founded an NGO known as Women's Legal Action Watch. And I also uh, got involved at the regional level and international level with a number of um, 
networks at the regional level. Uh, I served for nine years approximately on, on, on each uh, uh, network, Women in Law and Development in Africa, WILDAP, which was based in Zimbabwe at the time, and the African Center for Democracy and Human Rights Studies based in the Gambia, and also International Women's Rights Action Watch uh, based in Minnesota. And, and uh, my interest in public policy also led me to serve as an advisor to the, to the Minister of Women's Rights, Child Development and Family Welfare in 2000. I was very much seen as, as an activist. I was an activist. And in 2000, I was appointed by the government of Mauritius to chair two task forces, one on discriminatory laws against women and, and, and one on, on children's rights to harmonize uh, laws uh, uh, with uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we had just ratified. I was also called to draft some important pieces of legislation, sex discrimination bill, protection from the domestic violence bill. Uh, then 2003, I was elected, 2002, I was elected on the, on, on the CEDO committee. I served until 2017. And in that capacity, I, my focus has always been on women, peace and security. And I uh, was the one to uh, uh, to initiate the general recommendation on women in conflict prevention, conflict and post-conflict situation, because I was like devastated by the fact that uh, uh, states parties, 187 states parties, did not see the link uh, between, uh, to, to report on 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 uh, conflict uh, or post post conflict and measures that they were taking to implement. They did not see the relevance of CEDAW. And I recall it was Sri Lanka that was an eye opener for, for me. Uh, Sri Lanka, the report of Sri Lanka was examined and there was nothing in the report about the very, very difficult uh, post conflict phase and last phase of, of the conflict. So that's when I took that initiative and that, that general recommendation was adopted in 2013. I was also a member of the high level advisory group for the global study on the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Uh, and that study presented clear and compelling evidence that, that women's protection and equal participation is a force multiplier for national and international peace and security. Uh, I was very sensitive. I was. I, I reacted uh, very much when there was the appalling massacre and mass rape in the uh, Guinean capital of Conakry in the stadium on 28th of September 2009, two days before Resolution 1888 was adopted. And uh, I was then on the CEDAW committee and, and, and got a statement out. And then I was appointed by the then UN Secretary General, uh, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, to serve as a commissioner. Uh, on the International Commission of Inquiry. And we came up with a report which really captured the sexual violence. And I recall going back to present the report to the Secretary General and he, he wanted to know more about my background because he realized that it was the first report where, the sex, where there was a focus on the, on the sexual violence because during the massacre, many men were killed, et cetera. There were, there were uh, uh, many violations of human rights, but sexual violence had its place. So, uh, and then I was appointed in 2017. I, I never imagined that that would be, that I would quit the bar and, and would actually uh, work at the UN. And, uh, but but looking back, I think I, I this is the experience that I bring uh, to, to uh, in, in discharging my current mandate, which is focused on prevention, uh, 
and 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 uh, response to the scourge of sexual violence. Uh, I bring this. Uh, uh, I'm the third uh, special representative appointed by the Secretary General. Uh, unlike my uh, my two predecessors, uh, I bring this legal background. I br bring the gender expertise, and I think that my legal experience does help and, and does inform the political advocacy with, with governments or parties to conflict, uh, national human rights and judicial institutions. Just, just to tell you that, for example, I work with a range of actors. Uh, I have signed frameworks of cooperation with the CEDO committee, with Committee on the Rights of the Child, and, uh, and I'm working very closely with them. And you mentioned Afghanistan. Uh, in the context of that, framework of cooperation with CEDAW. I, I got the committee at the last session to request this uh, an exceptional report from Afghanistan because Afghanistan has ratified uh, CEDAW without reservations and I was instrumental uh, in, in, in that work uh, back in 2003 to, to help them to, to ratify without reservations, help them with the preparation of their report. And I think on Afghanistan, it's important that we not uh, do not only focus on, say, education of girls or, uh, or women's employment, but that we look at the centrality of, of, uh, of women's and girls' rights. And, and, and uh, I, I work with a, with a range of, of stakeholders, including religious leaders. Uh, I have initiated, we celebrated, we commemorated the 10th anniversary of the mandate in 2019, and I, I have launched a global champion uh, initiative. And... Uh, Recently, in June, I appointed the Secretary General of the Interparliamentary Union as a global champion, and yes. we are we are working very very closely together uh, in in uh, improving legislative framework. For example, in in June on the uh, International Day on the Elimination of Sexual Violence in Conflict, I also launched a model legislative uh, model legislative provisions on investigation and and prosecution. A very comprehensive uh, uh, piece of work that will really help uh, member states uh, to to have a comprehensive framework in place. And with the IPU, uh, I'm rolling out this model le uh, legislative provisions in the countries because uh, 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 all the political agreements that I have signed the 11 countries contain uh, uh, one priority area being. Uh, justice sector and and and, and legal framework. Uh, so that's thank that's uh, no, thank that's, you. That's and, where I come from. And and it's you know it's very um, important. And I'm going to come to to Robin and Saruda with the same question. I think it's it's you know when we look back historically or when we see these developments, um, any of these resolutions, any of these legal frameworks, whether it's at the national level or at the global level or at the local level, for that matter. Um, we forget that there are people who are pushing and working nonstop. And so to actually hear how you, as in, in the capacity and the roles that you've had, have been instrumental in getting these you know, legal frameworks on paper, on however one wants to call it, but it's so important. So thank you for actually giving us that, that sort of comprehensive you know, tool of the force of, of your career and, and how, how you got here. And, and, uh, and especially as women, people don't necessarily always talk about what they've achieved. So I, th I think this is very important. Um, uh, Robina, I'm going to come to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what got you here. So you know, how did life start for you and how did you end up becoming such a critical leader in, in this work in Uganda, but also 
internationally um, in terms of in terms of your connectivity and the experiences and so forth. Thank you. I guess I, I guess I have always been drawn to women because as a teenager, uh, I thought I would be a gynecologist. But that didn't happen. Uh, so I became a teacher of English language and literature, um, which I enjoyed tremendously until my teaching career was cut short. In uh, 1980, we had general elections in Uganda, and those elections were rigged. I was a young mother of uh, a baby girl who was one year and 11 months, and I had a baby boy who was born at the time of elections, actually. So two months after the elections, because my husband had uh, voted a, political, a new political party at the time that became very unpopular after the elections. And the government that won um, decided that everybody who had voted for that party was a member of the rebel movement. The leader of the political party was our current president. And you know, there were all these young elite men teaching at universities. And my husband was one of them. So uh, when Museveni went to the bush in February uh, 1981, then the government started arresting all these university professors. So my husband fled Uganda into exile. Uh, actually, a friend who was a minister in the Obote government came home one evening and said that they would pick him up the following day and took him to the airport. He left me with, the, with these two little babies. Uh, the youngest then was about a month, I don't know, about two months. And so I stayed behind. Uh, I didn't know where he had gone. I didn't hear from him. But six months later, I got a letter from him uh, telling me what to do and how to get to him in another country. So I started that process. I thought I had enough money, but in the midst of getting documentation, uh, our currency was devalued. So the money I had was no longer enough to buy myself and my kids air tickets. So I had to go by road. And a journey from Kampala to the nearest border that I knew, Kenya, would normally take like four hours. It took me three days to get through the roadblocks uh, and all that, carrying two babies and their luggage. I couldn't carry my own luggage at all. And I remember when we got out of the bus on the Uganda side of the border, there is about two kilometers that you have to walk, the no man's land to reach Kenya. And my little girl couldn't walk it and I couldn't carry her because I was carrying the baby and holding their suitcase. So my little girl started crying. And I felt so sad and I too started crying. By the time we reached the Kenya border, I was crying, my baby girl was crying, my little baby here was crying and we were all exhausted.
It took us three days to make a journey of four hours. And so I was in exile for seven years. I have lived as a refugee. I know what it means. And while I was in exile, I lost a brother, a brother I loved, the one I came after for my mother's womb. He was my closest friend. And I didn't even know that he had died. Uh, so when we returned, and I found that my brother had died, but I was also still traumatized by that journey that I had to make with my two children. And I decided that if I could do something to prevent just one more woman from facing what I faced, then I would go for it. So when I returned, I got a, a job with Plan International as a development worker. And my role was a women's program. They called me Women and Youth Coordinator. And I was doing a livelihoods program for women and youth. And I thought I found my calling. You know, I, I could see how life changed if you gave women a little money or a heifer, or a goat. So I could see, and, and I appreciated that. But then I rejoined the government and went into communications. And I worked with the Ministry of Finance. So I was exposed to policy development. And then I realized how gender blind all our policies were. And I could still think about my work with blood and how women were so poor. While we had roads and these structures, there was nothing going to, to women on the ground. And then my friends, I had two good friends that you know as uh, Senam, Ruth and Jessica. They were in this amazing organization and they held gender, gender talks every Thursday. So they invited me while I worked with the Minister of Finance to start attending gender talks. That is how I ended up going with them to visit IDP camps in northern Uganda during the, the, the war with the Lord's Resistance Army. That's how I ended up being a part of the group that walked to Juba for the peace talks. That's when I found my passion. I wouldn't be doing anything else. It is this work. So in retirement, I established COACT, which has now become a huge alliance of all these peace building organizations, including Care, Care International, by the way. And so the work continues. I love working with women and girls. I like to see them smile. I want to influence policies so that they can work for them. The national policies, the regional policies, and the global policies. So I'm in the right place now. Thank you. And, and it, when, you, when you say that, it's just, I think it gives everybody a sense of inspiration and, and hope to that. And again, the journey from a teacher to, to this incredible national work that you're doing and the international experiences. Sarud, um, does this resonate with you? How did you end up doing the kind of work that you're doing? Um, what did you, did you expect this 20 years ago? Yeah, you know, uh, it's it's so funny when I, I want to talk about that uh, because it's it's uh, uh, history, you know, it's part of uh, uh, what I've been related to the city for a while that being obliged to displace to another city. We went to the uh, Erbil uh, for around uh, um, uh, 
you know, more than 12 years I stayed in Erbil. And uh, uh, after I graduated from the college, uh, uh, because uh, through the um, uh, uprising 1991, I lost three members of the family. Uh, seven people around me, they died. Uh, uh, I've been shot twice, you know. Uh, uh, after we've been displaced and after removing Saddam, we return back to the Kirkuk and uh, I, I start working voluntarily with the people because uh, at the time I've been displaced in Erbil, I worked for the UN for a while and excuse me for the my bad English because I don't use it, you know, just like maybe few times a year I use because I start forgetting. And um, after we returned back to Kirkuk, I uh, uh, start working voluntarily then from since 2005, I'm working for Iraqi Al-Amal Association until today. In the beginning, I, I was alone, but now I 85 staff, I have it with me, working with me. Um, we are holding the, uh, we are, we can't, talk with the voice of the women and girls in the Kirkuk. And like when I walk to the government building, you know, this is very important for me. Everybody are scaring because they know we are not afraid and we are talking about them. And just, they tell me through, just let me this month to continue my work because I have everything about everybody here. And the, uh, the people, they give it to me. So it's to defend myself, you know with the uh, uh, official evidence so that they can protecting me. And uh, uh, also there is a good people, you know, in all the government people, uh, government uh, uh, department. So um, uh, it's like in, by the Iraqi law, we cannot deal uh, officially with the government uh, uh, department, but we create a personal relation with everybody since that we started working until today. So. Uh, the head of the tribe, the religion man, everybody, they knows us and they respect us because my grandfather, he was one of the religion master here in Kirkuk. I don't know if you know about the Naqshbandiya. So he's very unknown and he's, uh, um, uh, everybody knows him. So uh, when I start working, this is the culture here. They ask who you are, who's your father? So in, in the beginning, my father, until he was shaming my daughter working with the, with the NGOs, you know, because the reputation was bad. So uh, like, just I said, I'm shrewd until I didn't use my father's name. And now when my father, now like after uh, all that years, when he go, goes to any place, he said, he's the shrewd's father, you know. And, the, you know, that it's been changed everything. And now they start supporting me because I create their reputation for the NGOs, the independent one, because most of the NGOs here are related to the different parties, different, you know, they use them. So um, it, it's, it's not um, easy to keep your independent here. It's not easy to work with the GBV cases. And SGBV, uh, especially in this society, the, the culture, you know, uh, uh, the, the culture against us, the law also, and the, uh, all the environment, the army, and the uh, corruption, you know. But uh, thanks to God, and uh, what this is what I believe, because I'm not 
working for myself. I'm working for people's rights. And this is uh, uh, when I walk to any checkpoint, un- checkpoints, and it, until if it's closed, so I can see it's opening for me. So they know that I'm, uh, I'm going to defend for one of the uh, survivors' rights. So this is more, more important for me. And we got respect for that. And uh, thanks, thanks for the ICANN. Thanks for everybody who are working to, uh, to raise the voice for the people who, who don't have, have voice, you know? Thank you. Sorry, thank you, Sarud. And, and it's what you say about the trust that you have, who you are, and, and how your father now says that he is Sarud's fa- da- uh, father, as opposed to, I, th- I think the, these cultural connections, I think, are so important in terms of the kinds of issues we're, we're dealing with. I'm conscious of time, and I'm going to share with you some of the questions that have come up in the chat, and um, and one of my my own questions um, as, as a final question, but um, just if you if you feel like answering any of them in particular, um, uh, please just just say. So we have a question from um, from David Walter from Birkbeck alumni who says, "Do you think that violence is a class issue?" Um, and and we're, when we're talking about um, number of women in parliament uh, and, and government, he says. Uh, does it tell us that violence is a class issue? Do you believe that women in governance and social elite circles are, are also implicit in violence against women? Do, do, do women also enable perpetrating violence against women? Or, or uh, do, if we have more women in politics, is it going to change? That's one question. A second question is from Laura Forsyth from the Natural Resource Institute at the University of Greenwich, who, who says um, she's interested to know if uh, agriculture and natural resource-based livelihoods is an important uh, means for enabling survivors and and also as a prevention mechanism. And I, and I think I think that's a good question to all of you, actually, in terms of how do we, you know, we have partners in Cameroon who have been helping displaced women with agricultural work to prevent them from getting involved in sexual, um, in sex work as, as a means of survival. So I'm just curious about whether you think that kind of livelihoods and uh, issues matters. And Robina, you mentioned that um, before as well. And then Alessandra Biagioni is asking um, about uh, uh, the question of what else is the UN doing in terms of conflict-related sexual violence committed by UN peacekeeping personnel? Um, and I think that's that's probably coming to uh, to you, Pramila. But but also I think um, uh, Robina, given given that Uganda has had you know has in, has been involved in peacekeeping, I, th- I think it's an important question. And then my own, you know, question maybe at the end of this is to say, um, you know, share with us some of the really uh, innovative solutions and uh, transformative work that you feel that you're doing right now. Like what, what's, if, if I wanted to say what's, you know, one of you mentioned peace, peace circles and working with men, um, what, you know, at the local level, what do you think the world should know about how it's possible to change mentalities and culture and and so forth. Are are we are we able to make headway in 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 the shift um, that, that we're talking about? So these are the questions. I don't know if anybody who would like to start, or if you have questions to each other. Yes, go ahead, Pramila. Go ahead. Okay, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll respond to uh, to the last question about about transformative work. Uh, I have a mandate to. Uh, to provide coherent and strategic leadership on both prevention and response. And I, over the past four years, I have come to realize that uh, we, uh, 
although it is a crime as old as the history of war itself, but CRSV is, and, and CRSV is preventable, uh, not an inevitable byproduct of war and is never an accident. Yet we have focused more on response and we have used the terminology of prevention and response interchangeably. So what I have been doing uh, over the past year, and in fact, it was during the COVID time, uh, is to look at the array of prevention uh, measures, tools and practices that we have, prevention per se, that have proven successful in, in helping to protect civilians and to, and to prevent the, the occurrence of sexual violence. Uh, but also my research led me to, to understand that uh, for many reasons, especially lack of sustainable funding for long-term programmatic prevention work, much of the responses have focused primarily on intervening uh, with affected individuals and helping survivors after the violence has occurred. And of course, I, I, I am not saying that these strategies are not essential to mitigate devastating mental, physical, social and economic effects for victims experiencing sexual violence. But I think it is important to continue uh, although it is important to, 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 uh, to improve these responses, I think there is a compelling need to invest more on prevention. And, and for me, that's where I want to, 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 to the shift that I want to see in this mandate. And in discharging my mandate, I'm like guided by a firm belief and conviction that the earlier and the deeper the seeds of, of uh conflict-related sexual violence prevention are sowed, the better and more sustainable their fruits will be. So uh, through UN Action Network, which I chair, and which is a network which comprises of 20 UN entities and agencies, my office is working on a prevention framework, and that framework will be launched early next year. Uh, and the purpose really uh, of the framework is to assist all relevant actors, stakeholders, more especially government, but also UN agencies to improve and expand their programmatic efforts to better prevent CRSV. And I have engaged uh, with a number of uh, donors who are very keen to, to, uh, to support the framework, which I will roll in, uh, in a number of countries. And the framework precisely is intended to be a roadmap to address prevention efforts and to serve as a tool for more broad-based uh, initiative. Because for me, the goal uh, of the mandate is to stop sexual violence from happening in the, in, in the first place. And prevention efforts should ultimately result in a decrease in the number of individuals who perpetrate sexual violence and the number of individuals who are victims. So that's my big project for, Thank for the you. years um, to come. And I'm going to I'm going to pass the floor to to, to Robina to say, uh, but also to uh, if we have time to come back to you to say where does partnership with civil society come into this? Because as we've heard from Sarud and and Robina, one of the biggest problems is, and, and and it's coming up in the questions as well is that if you have the state actors actually either complicit in sexual violence or corruption and so forth, and the real work is being done locally, kind of sub-state, how do we bridge the gap between what's happening at the UN level and your great work and then and the work on the ground? And uh, Robina, did you want to answer that also kind of in terms of what you're doing and how that might link to what Pramila's doing? Uh, you're muted. Yes, I go there, but I also wanted to speak on uh, whether violence against women is a class issue. So now, um, 
our studies in Uganda have shown that violence against women and girls is not a class issue. Um, we find that women whose career becomes more successful than the husband's career, they, they become victims of violence from their party, from their intimate partner. It could be sexual violence, it could be battering, or it could just be emotional abuse, but it happens. The difference, and this is remarkable, the difference is that the elite women do not talk about their experiences. And because they don't talk about the experiences, the general belief is that they don't suffer from violence, but they actually do. And one of the things we do is to make sure that the local level women, the ordinary woman can report, they have the courage to report, they have the courage to speak out. But we also bring them to the national arena so that they can speak to, to kind of inspire the elite, my colleagues, to also speak about the violence that they experience. So I want to speak about that. And, and number two, uh, uh, talking about the things that we do uh, to address some of this, I, I think for us, the few things that we have done that could easily be replicated, if you can call it that, one is localizing the laws, the policies that protect women and girls. Uh, we have found this with our national action plan working with the local authorities to address domestic violence, to address violence against women, to address violence against children at the community level, so that they develop local action plans that increase uh, violence, that increases prevention and also increases response. Um, this year, we have supported uh, three women's groups to develop position papers. They have had time to think through the drivers of violence against women in their communities, and also to look at how those are manifested and the impact they've had on women. So they have documented that in a position paper and made specific recommendations of what they want the local authorities to do. And we have enabled them to present these position papers to the district council that is powerful. And these opposition papers have actually been adopted by the district councils. This is an approach that can be replicated. The other one is the women's peace tables. And right now, we are working with women refugees to develop this concept further of women's peace tables. The women from the local community come together. They identify, it could be one form of violence against women or all of them. And they sit down and they discuss it. They identify the perpetrators. They, they, they name the women, the women that have been affected will come and tell them. 
and they document the impact that has had not only on the women themselves, but on the community and all the women around. And they also make recommendations and they call a local leader. They call the local leader to come and listen to them. So they present their position to the local leader. And the local leader can choose to call in the perpetrator or the perpetrators. They can choose to call in a mediator if the case is of a civil nature, but they can also immediately go and arrest the perpetrator and take them to the police. Dealing with the cases of sexual violence against children, the sexual violence against children has been uh, very well addressed in those communities that have a peace table. Buttering of women comes to the peace table. Economic violence comes to the peace table. So these peace tables can also be replicated, you know, in a different in different communities and at the different levels. Thank you very much. That that's great to, to know. And I'm just conscious of time. So Sarud, does local women's peace tables and working with local authorities, you mentioned this as well. Is this coming, is this the, the sort of the, the solution upwards? And how do we then close the gap to, to make sure that again, internationally and globally, you're getting the support that you need from, the, from, our, from our UN colleagues and others? Uh, yeah, we need different support like international lobby. We need it also, we need to support now uh, the new parliament member, the female parliament member, the uh, 94, because they don't have any experience. We started as, a, uh, you know, activists from Kharkov to surrounding them uh, because uh, they are part of the some of the uh, po uh, political, uh, you know, actors. So uh, it's important so they, that they can holding uh, the, uh, you know, um, uh, the uh, society um, uh, problems uh, uh, so they can defend on the rights of the people. And we start telling them how we've been supporting them, how we've been advocating for voting for the woman. And uh, because you are uh, having our name. So it's important that uh, uh, the international uh, uh, empower, empower uh, to law the Iraqi government to empowering the, um, uh, the Iraqi female members. Also, uh, it's important also to support the NGOs here in Iraq because we are working in the uh, shadowing side and uh, in hidden side. And it's important also to, um, uh, to, to follow with the implementing the law and uh, this, the official statement for the SGBV, because that is very, uh, uh, as uh, my colleague uh, said, uh, uh, most of the perpetrators are from the security forest uh, 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 members. And uh, this is what it's the same in, in the same society. And uh, um, for, for us, uh, we are looking for the quality uh, of the uh, women uh, uh, that who are, uh, uh, you know, they win with the parliament seat. Uh, it's important to uh, empowering them. Um, um, uh, also, Iraq now we have the second nap uh, for the 1325, but it is just in the paper. It's not, uh, it's not showing anything in the ground and it's important to follow with the uh, Iraqi parliament what happened uh, uh, to uh, to that uh, national action plan for the Iraq yeah. ladies thank you so much I'm conscious of time we are four minutes of, over our time but um, 
I wanted to, first of all, thank you for a really extraordinary conversation as a, as a wrap up to the year, um, uh, the series, and of course, in the context of the 16 days of um, uh, action uh, on prevention of violence against women. And I hope that, that we will be able to continue the collaboration offline as well, this kind of the local to the international level. And I'm left with, you know, number one, of course, the question of prevention. Um, is much better than than uh, than trying to deal with a problem at the end, but also this idea that we need to be shifting the shame and shifting the fear of sexual violence away from potential victims and actual survivors to the potential perpetrators. That that the fear should be the fear of God should be in them before they actually perpetrate any form of violence, and and the shame should be on them as opposed to the uh, as opposed to the to the. Um, to the survivors. And as, and as you say, when you engage people at a local level and really address these things, you can change uh, attitudes. So that, that one-on-one, unfortunately, sort of small scaling across as opposed to scaling up or bottom, bottom up as well as top down is such an important um, uh, series of strategies. But thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And um, thank you for everybody who was listening. I'm sorry I didn't get through all the questions. And I hope to see you in 2022 with a with reiteration of the series. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Pramila. Thank you, Sarood. Thank you, Robinette. Thank, Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.